morning and morning. Merry Christmas to all. It's really good to be back here. It's been quite a while and this place is a very special place in all our hearts, I think. I don't know about you, one of the things I look forward to worshipping here is really being able to look out there and always be constantly reminded that's what we're here for as well. Like they always said, you know, um, Christianity is the only club that looks out for the welfare of its non-members. And that's what we're doing, isn't it? Looking out for the world. Uh, you should have a copy of the handout um, as you come in. Please uh, have a copy of that with you. It will give you a steer as to where this sermon is heading um, this morning. Our world is in a mess, and that shouldn't be surprising, especially for someone living here in North America. An, AB, an NBC News poll just a few months ago revealed that just 21% of voters in the U.S. feel that the nation is headed in the right direction. 74% of the voters think that America is heading in the wrong direction. Over half of the respondents, or about 58%, say they feel that more worried that America's best years may already be behind us. Well, Canada is not that far behind. A survey commissioned by CTV News a few months back asked Canadians their opinion on whether Canada is on the right track to receiving, achieving two objectives. One, building a united country, and two, creating prosperity for the future. Half of those surveyed believe Canada is on the wrong track to uniting the country compared to about maybe one-fifth who believe it is on the right track. The rest were unsure. The war in Ukraine seems to be not ending anytime soon. Climate change continues to be a real threat. Nations are no closer to addressing it. Inflation is high. Major economies are heading for a slowdown, a recession. Our politics, a reflection of our society, is divided and dysfunctional. And France lost the World Cup. Well, it's not so different, actually, from the point of view of a Jewish person living in a tiny strip of land called Palestine. 2,000 years ago, the world was seen to be in a mess as well back then. In fact, the first verse in our passage of uh, Thankful Nicole read for us this morning, tells us just as much. A decree has gone out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Well, first of all, if someone with a name like Caesar Augustus should tell you that he's not Jewish, right? And foreign powers were ruling over the Jewish land, and a decree has gone out. Um, for everyone to be registered, and as Jews, we know, were exempted at a point in time from uh, serving in the Roman army. We know that this census was introduced for the purpose of taxation, not for military conscription. And this is so to allow the Romans to know who and how much to tax. Now, I want you to imagine, can you imagine the IRS from the US requiring Canadian citizens to be registered so that we can pay taxes to the US government? But worse, you know, you have to go back to your hometown, your town of birth to be registered. 
And so over Christmas, you have to book tickets and make your way back to Calgary, Vancouver, Halifax, or wherever you come from, right? So you can be registered. Well, good luck with that at Pearson Airport this weekend. Right? Now, in times like this, you've got to ask, where is God? And what in the world is he doing? Is he even in control? Our passage this morning addresses these questions and more. In fact, what I'd like to do is to take this passage, break it into four parts. Um, the first one is from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. God prepares. Verses 6 to 7, God provides. 8 to 14, God proclaims. And finally, from verses 15 to 20, God responds. But look at, let's look at the first section, God prepares. We spoke about verse 1 briefly earlier. The mention of the decree by Caesar Augustus tells us when the event took place, plus minus a few years. But I'm more interested at this point about who this man Caesar Augustus is. He was the great nephew of Julius Caesar, and he ruled over the entire Roman Empire. In fact, he was the first Caesar to be called Augustus. Uh, and this was when the Roman Senate voted to give him that title. Augustus, as you may know, means holy, means revered. Up to that point, the title was reserved exclusively for the gods, but no longer. In fact, increasingly, Greek cities in Asia Minor would adopt Caesar Augustus' birthday, which fell on September 23rd, as the first day of the new year for them, who would hail him as Saviour. An inscription that was found in Halicarnassus, which is a, this is an ancient Greek city that is now in modern-day Turkey, the inscription would identify Augustus as God, Son of God, and Saviour of the whole world. And they associated him with peace, hope, and good news. Sounds familiar? Because it's exactly under those circumstances that Luke would write those words in, verses, in verse 11 of today's passage. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, is Christ, Christ as in the anointed king, is Christ the Lord, not the master. Luke was applying the titles of Augustus to Jesus in the angelic announcement to the shepherds in verses 10 and 11. Nothing short of a challenge to the political powers of the day. Luke wanted to tell his readers who the real saviour of the world was. Well, but yet it would seem the circumstances of Jesus' birth, where it was going to be, were dictated by politics. The decision by Caesar Augustus, through, through the decree that he sent out. But that would be wrong. Why? Because we know that the birthplace of Jesus was prophesied by the prophet Michael in Michael 5, uh, verse 2. We read that yesterday at our Christmas Eve uh, service. Uh, just read that for you. Michael 5 verse 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrata, Ephrata is a district where Bethlehem is in, you, O Bethlehem, Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. You see, the prophet Micah prophesied in 8th century BC 
That's about 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And he's predicting that Bethlehem, a little smaller village in an insignificant strip of land at the far end of the Mediterranean would be the place where this Christ, Jesus, Savior of the whole world, will be born. See, God has ordained that right from the start. And in preparing for a place for Jesus to be born, God used Caesar Augustus through his decree to bring about the fulfillment of God's plan. And it wasn't just being born in Bethlehem that was predicted. We are told that Jesus was born of a house and lineage of David. Now, King David was the one whom God had made an unconditional promise to build a house for him, a dynasty of kings who will come from his body and where the lineage will never end. Jesus is the promised offspring of King David, who would fulfill the covenanted promises that God made King David in 2 Samuel 7, where God promised to raise an offspring from David and establish his kingdom forever. And that was a thousand years before Caesar Augustus made his decree. So it wasn't a powers to be. Not Caesar Augustus, not the governor of Syria, Quirinius, who were in control. It was God in control. God decided where Jesus would be born. And although it didn't seem that way on the night that Jesus was born, I think for many of us it's good news that our God is sovereign, who is in control. What about the parents of Jesus? I mean, who is Joseph, right? We don't know much about him, except that he's probably an insignificant village carpenter from Nazareth. And Mary was probably just still a teenager, woman those days married early. Both Joseph and Mary were betrothed and came from Nazareth, another small village in Galilee. And what we know is that the people in Judah looked down on Jews from Galilee. They didn't think they were kosher because they were up there and coming to frequent contact with Gentiles. That's why we read in Matthew chapter 4, verse 15. Galilee is called the Galilee of the Gentiles. And worse if you're coming from Nazareth. Because remember what happened when the disciple Philip told Nathaniel in John chapter 1. He said, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael's reply, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So even in Galilee, Nazareth was particularly despised. Our God, in preparing for the Savior of the world to be born, chose a simple, lowly couple, Joseph and Mary, from the despised little village of Nazareth in this disdained region of Galilee to fulfill the promise of a Messiah for his people. Our God knows what he's doing. He's in control. God prepares. God provides. Thanks. Verses 6 and 7. What is God's plan to save the world? A baby. It was a long journey, well over 75 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And given that Joseph was not well-to-do, that's a good chance that Mary was not traveling on a donkey, but walked the whole distance on foot. All this while, 
washes pregnant. When they finally arrived in Bethlehem, we're not told how much time passed between the arrival at Bethlehem and the baby being due. But a common view is that because there was no place in a local inn for them, Mary gave birth in a stable with the animals. We see this on all the Hallmark uh, Christmas cards, don't we? I think that's a misconception. Because the ESV, and in fact, many of the earlier translations tell us it's an inn that no place for them. Although if you looked at uh, your, I'm not sure if it's in your version of the Bible, but if you look down, the word in there, there's a footnote, right? Do you have that yeah. in your Bible? Mm -hmm. And it says, what does it say? Guest room. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, and also because we know that Mary laid Jesus in a manger. You know what a manger is, right? Basically an animal feeding trough. Right? The nativity scene that is so common to us is this family in a stable with animals all around them. Because the commercial, the local commercial inn had no room for them. I think the NIV translation in this sense probably got it right. In the NIV it says, uh, translates this Greek word, kataluma, as guest room, not inn. Because it's the same kataluma that's used in Luke chapter 22, verses 11 and 12. Cody, would you read that for us? Luke chapter 22, verses 11 and 12. Tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. Thanks. That guest room is the same word, kataluma, as what you find in your passage in Luke chapter 2. You see, the very idea that Joseph, returning from to, uh, to his place of ancestral origin, right, in Bethlehem, the very idea that he would not be received by family members, even if they're not close relatives, was unthinkable. Those of us perhaps who live in the East Asia and in the Middle East, for instance, we will understand that. Certainly not in those days and not in that culture. They would have received him. And I was very much helped in understanding this by a uh, scholar, Kenneth Bailey. And in fact, what I'm describing uh, uh, below is Quran uh, is from his book, Jesus True, Middle Eastern Eyes. You see, in the Middle East, historical memories are long. And the extended family with its connection to the family of origins is important. In such a world, a man like Joseph could have appeared in Bethlehem and told people, I am Joseph, son of Jacob, son of Matan, son of Eliza. And I know what? Immediately the response would have been, Oh, welcome. What can we do for you? Those are the kind of relational ties that you have in those days, in that culture. In fact, if Joseph did have some members of the extended family residing in the village, he was honor bound to seek them out. And furthermore, even if he didn't have friends or families in the village, because he came from the famous house of David, for the sake of David, he would still be welcomed into any of the village homes. 
And of course, in any culture, not just in that culture, a woman about to give birth will be given special attention, special care, anyway. All the more in the Middle Eastern culture at that point in time. Now, all this shouldn't come as a surprise because the practice of hospitality is, is almost obligatory in those cultures, even to this day. I've walked in the streets of Quetta in, in Pakistan and, and gotten invited to attend a wedding just because they knew I was a visitor in the area. Well, I guess it helped that I had a nice looking camera and chance for a smattering of Farsi. See, in a typical Middle Eastern home back in the days of Jesus, we also need to understand that the manger, the animal feeding trough, is not placed somewhere in a stable or barn away from the house. The typical home usually has two rooms. One was exclusively for the guests. And if you can imagine where we are right now, as the home, typical home, the guest room will be, you see that door in the back there? Beyond that, in the backyard, imagine that's enclosed, there'll be the guest room. There'll be a guest room there. And this will be one big room. Well, um, this is big by the standards. They won't have such a big room, probably half the size. And there'll be their family room. But the guest room will be attached at the end of uh, this family room, or sometimes you'll have them upstairs on the above the roof. You'll create a room there, which you read earlier on in uh, the passage in Luke 22, where Jesus asked his disciples to look for the upper room for Passover. Right. And then, so that's the guest room. The main room was a family room where the entire family would cook, they would eat, they would sleep, they would live, they would do everything. And at, the, at this end of family room would usually be a few feet lower. There's usually a slope of some sort. It'll be a few feet lower. And into this, well, if it's not a few feet lower, uh, then in the same level, they'll have some uh, locks or separate <coughs> partition off from the main part of the uh, family room. And into this space here, with the door there, would each night, the family cow, uh, the donkey, or, or a few sheep would be driven, and they'll stay here. And a couple of mangers, feeding trough, will be dug into the floor, just over here, between where the family would be sleeping and where the animals would be sleeping. Um, this is so that the animals, if they wanted, they could get up and they could eat, eat or drink from the manger. So can you imagine a place where they keep the animals, the main door there, you have that on your hand out. And then the family living room with two, a couple of mangers, perhaps, uh, for the animals. And it makes a lot of sense. Why? Because on a cold day, winter night, the animals help to keep warm, isn't it? Now, in fact, this configuration makes a lot of sense of many of the stories that we read in the Bible. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Jephthah in Judges 11. Jephthah was a judge, was going out uh, for war. And he vowed to sacrifice the first thing that came out of the house if God grants him victory. It's a dumb vow. But that aside, right? We should assume that he never thought that a member of his family would be the first one coming out, but rather an animal would come out. Had his home housed only human beings, he would have never made such a vow. Matthew 5 
verse 15, for instance, when Jesus said that we are to be light of the world and that no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Well, obviously, Jesus is assuming a typical village home with one room. And hence, a single light can shed light on everyone in the house. Now, what does this all mean? Implications. It means that, most likely, Joseph and Mary were received into the private home of relative. The baby was born, wrapped in a family room, in a manger, that was either built into the floor or perhaps made of wood, standing. They were not invited into the guest room, Cataluma, because it was probably already occupied uh, by other guests, and so there was no space for them. But a host family was gracious enough to welcome them into the family room of the house. And of course, naturally, this family room would be cleared of all the men for the birth of the child. And you probably have the village midwife and other women who would be around to assist Mary uh, as she gives birth. In fact, the notion of a young girl being left to give birth alone in a stable in such a relational culture is unrealistic. It won't happen. The baby born would be wrapped and placed in a manger with fresh straw and covered with a blanket. Now, think about that, in a sense, pretty ordinary. Pretty ordinary for a typical baby born in that time to poor families in those places. And most families in those days were poor. So, in a sense, but perhaps from the immaculate conception, Jesus' birth that night was very, very ordinary. But there, the similarity and ordinariness ends. Because the reason for this birth is like no other. Because on this night, by his birth, God provides. God provides a way for the world to be saved. He provides a baby who will be the saviour of the world. God provides. Next, God prepares, God provides, God proclaims. Look at verses 8 to 14. Luke tells us that the same night that Jesus was born, verse 8, and the same region, which means it's probably a few miles away from where the home was that Jesus was born, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The most important event in all of history, the most amazing thing that can happen, that baffles the greatest theologians, the greatest mind, the idea of God incarnated as flesh and blood. And who gets to hear it first? Not the king, or the high priest, or the governor, or those important people in a ruling council, 
know, the news was announced first to the shepherds. I know there's a tendency for many commentators to, to make a point that the shepherds were despised Lord. But I think this negative reputation for shepherds came probably later, much later than the first century, or in the third century. You see, the biblical image, whether it's in uh, the Old Testament or even in, in the New Testament, the biblical image of a shepherd at a time of Jesus is actually mostly positive. That's why Jesus said, I'm the shepherd. Right? But there's no doubt that they were ordinary workers. Low occupation, no social standing. Right? And it is to this lowly man, in a sense, the highest theology, the greatest news was to be told. In a sense, isn't that exactly what happened with Jesus' resurrection? God chose women to be first to witness that the resurrection. Women, in those days, the testimonies would not even be accepted in a court of law. And here, at Jesus' birth, God chose for this good news to come to the shepherds first, not to the high and mighty in society. A reminder once again that our God comes to the humble and lowly. <clears throat> what does it mean then to have the glory of the Lord shone around them? The Greek word for glory, doxa, connotes splendor, brightness. This together with the appearance of the angel understandably filled the shepherds with great fear. But to bring great fear was not the purpose of this angel's appearance. In fact, it's the opposite it was to bring great joy, to proclaim good news of great joy that would be for all the people. But what is this good news? The next sentence tells us what it is because it starts with the word for, right? The word for here explains that the reason for the great joy is because unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's the great news. In fact, this is the only time we'll see the three titles of Jesus brought together. Savior, Christ, Lord. Jesus is the Savior who will save his people from their sins. The only one who can rescue humans from the judgment of sin and bring about the blessings which meet all our needs. Jesus is the Christ. Christ in the Greek word Christos for the Hebrew word Messiah. And the Hebrew word Messiah basically means the anointed king. And Jesus is the Christ, the anointed king promised to Israel, the anointed king that God promised David that will come from his lineage. And most of all, he's the Lord. The Lord is a title that Luke uses most often for Jesus in his gospel. This title refers not just to the idea of master, but to, in fact, it goes further than that. It's the only unspeakable personal name of God himself. He's saying this baby is God himself. That's a staggering talk. And so the angel of the Lord tells the shepherd that this Savior, Christ and Lord, is born this very night. And where can you find him? Lying in a manger? 
But if that's not the definition for the word oxymoron, I don't know what is. Just how incongruous can that be? This idea that the Savior describes the Lord lying in an animal eating trough. But you know what? I think they said that precisely to give comfort to the shepherds. Because if the child was truly the Messiah, the anointed king, right? His parents would reject the shepherds if they tried to visit him. I mean, try to imagine a few years back, right? Well, maybe more than a few years back. Prince George, remember, was born. He made a big hoo-ha, Prince George. Uh, born, you know, Catherine, the Princess of Wales, and uh, uh, Prince William, their first son, Prince George. When they gave birth to him at St. Mary's Hospital in London, good luck trying to visit him. Right. And Prince George is only second in the line of succession to the British throne. You won't get anywhere near him. But a baby wrapped in a manger? Now that sounds like an ordinary peasant's home. Shepherd's boy called like mine. Not the governor's mansion. I won't be turned away from that. That's good news. Because it's good news because the Savior, Christ the Lord, didn't just come to the lowly, he came as the lowly. But that's not all, because all of a sudden, the angel was not alone. The angel was joined by a multitude of heavenly hosts, essentially a huge angelic choir. You know what, maybe every one of God's angel was there that night, because this was such a momentous event, the most amazing event that's happening in the entire universe. And they were saying God's praise, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. And who is God pleased with, if not those shepherds, his angels had just announced the good news of great joy to. God is involved, not just with the special, the great, or the smart, or the rich, but with all people. His announcement to the shepherds, to ordinary folks, shows that this good news is for all people. God prepares, God provides, God proclaims. And finally, God responds. How do you respond to revelation of this sort? Our passage from verses 15 to 20 gives us the response of three groups of people. First, we have the onlookers in, verses, uh, in verse 18, uh, who were amazed, we're told, at what the shepherds told them. And then we have Mary in verse 19, who treasured and pondered what she heard. And then we have the response, pretty much of the passage, uh, from the shepherds. I want to spend a bit more time on the response of the shepherd and then of Mary's. When the angels left, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has shown, made known to us. We were told we went in haste. So perhaps camp, like I said, a few miles away from where Jesus was born. And probably took off running, maybe racing one another, I can imagine, to see who gets there first. And when they reached the house, they found a new mother, a baby, as the angel has said. 
And immediately we are told they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. They proclaimed the good news. They passed it on, telling all who would listen about the angel and this wonderful birth. And when they left, we are told they were glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Now, there's a painting, in, uh, an oil painting, called The Adoration of the Shepherds. You have that, a copy of that on your handout, painted by the famous uh, Flemish uh, painter Hugo Benegals, uh, roughly 1480, it was about 600 years ago. Interesting to see how the artist portrays the shepherds at the scene with Mary and Joseph and the baby. And, uh, you can see that they are the, at the left hand uh, corner of the painting itself, uh, the two characters there um, in the painting. They look like they were tripping over themselves as they rushed there, possibly panting with beads of sweat on their forehead. And in fact, if you look carefully, the one in front is looks actually. If you look carefully, he might even well be at a point in time, having gotten there, seen the baby, recognized the baby, in this in a posture of worship. The shepherds have heard the good news, and they've rushed to ascertain it for themselves. And once they've seen it with their own eyes, they proclaim to everyone what the angels told them. And they worshipped the baby Jesus. And then they left glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as he had been told them. And it's exactly how one should respond to good news, isn't it? Proclaim to others, praise God, right? Proclaim, praise. How do you respond to good news? Are you like the shepherds? Or would you generally tend to be indifferent to any news? Well, you know what? I've got good news uh, for you today. <clears throat> now, amongst us listening right now is uh, Nathan and Echo. Nathan and Echo, would you like to share good news with all of us? Uh, yeah. Um, we are expecting a child uh, next May 2023. <laughs> Glad to be sharing the news with everyone. You are. Huh? Oh, Roger, you're you're muted. Agenda or uh, there'll be a a boy. We we can't hear you actually. 
Oh no, what we can do is we can unmute here. Okay. No, it's okay now. Okay. Yeah. But I was asking. Do you know that uh, it's going to be a. I think he's asking the gender. Uh, we know that they should be a boy. Right. Oh, fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. How can you be indifferent to uh, a news like that, right? And I'm sure some of you, you know, a little bit of the more gospel ones will be going back to your own. You know, guess who's having baby in May next year? And we will proclaim, we will tell these until we will celebrate with them and we'll give thanks. And I hope one of our other response will be to pray for them, right? Because you're going to need a lot of prayer. <laughs> but, you know, that would be our response, isn't it? But, you know, not everyone necessarily responds in that way because good news that's been proclaimed can be questioned it can be ignored as well in fact if you look at the painting again uh you can't see as clearly but uh when it goes painted two other shepherds behind the two in front can you see that and the two these two fellows seem to have decided not to join the mates they seem happy to be doing their own thing. Talking about the size of the catch the previous weekend, you know, that hand like that, maybe, and the other one playing the flute, I don't know. How would you respond to the good news of Jesus? Whatever it is, let us not be like those two shepherds behind. Instead, let us be like the front two shepherds who proclaimed and praised. What about Mary? How did she respond? We're told in verse 19 that Mary, but Mary treasured up all those things and pondering them in her heart. She treasured and pondered. Now, what does it mean to ponder? This Greek word, the idea is basically to bring things together in one's mind and in fact confer within oneself, to mull over in our thoughts. And what might these things be? There will be things that Mary treasured in her heart and things that Angel Gabriel told her in chapter 1 of Luke, for instance, and what the shepherd's saying right now. Someone wrote recently, you like to focus on the incarnation at Christmas time, and that's a good thing. We should spend a lot of time considering this amazing truth, but we can also become almost too familiar with it to the point of neglecting its majesty. Let's reject that temptation. Instead, let's let our jaws drop as we really think about what Jesus' birth meant for us. Let us, like Mary, take time over this season to ponder over afresh the meaning of the incarnation of Jesus. Or as Paul would put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Well, turn to your 
Bible for the passage if you can and you can read along with me if you want to. Second Corinthians chapter eight, verse nine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. And that's exactly what Jesus did by his incarnation. He left the splendor and the riches of heaven and became poor by taking on human form with all its limitations. Born in a manger in order that by his poverty we might all become rich. Now, for a world in a mess, we've got good news. Ponder, proclaim, praise. Some things you might want to consider doing this Christmas. In the name of Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.